Church, it's good to be with you guys today. My name is Halim Sah. I serve as one of the pastors and elders here at the Stone. Today is a special day in the life of our church. Today is the first day that our South Campus is joining us. So, so South Campus, welcome. We're so glad that you guys are here with us today. Um, what that means for the rest of us here at the high school or at St. John or at the West Campus is that even though you guys may not live in South Austin, you guys could join South Campus in prayer. I know that it's their desire for the South Campus to be a place where God is worshipped, where many people come to know Jesus, and so let's please join in prayer for that. Or if you happen to live in South Austin, I would like for you to, guys to consider making South campus your church home. So South Campus, welcome once again. You guys are truly a testimony to what God is doing in our city. Well, we're starting a new series today, a four-week series in which we're going to be looking at how the gospel addresses everything. How the gospel addresses everything. We're going to be looking at how the gospel just doesn't deal with eternal events, It also deals with our everyday events. How the gospel doesn't just speak to our eternal salvation, but it also speaks to our everyday things like work and money and sex and even depression. So those are the four specific topics that we're going to be covering. We're going to be looking at depression today. Next week, Matt's going to come and share with us on how the gospel addresses sex. So look forward to that. And then uh, we're going to be looking at money and work. And so obviously we're not going to be able to look at every topic and issue, but hopefully through the series we're setting up the framework of how the gospel is the lens through which we ought to view everything and it's the avenue through which we ought to do anything. And so first of all, what is the gospel? What is the gospel? We have to ask ourselves this question because if we don't and if we're not careful, the word gospel becomes this word that's just thrown out, right? It just becomes this religious word that you and I use all the time, but it loses any particular meaning. And so if we're not careful, the word gospel can become oversimplified. And we say things like, well, I I told somebody that God loves them, and so therefore I shared the gospel with them. Or I went and and served my neighbor this week. I helped him clean out his garage this week, and so therefore I shared the gospel with him. But is that true? Is that true? Telling somebody that God loves them, it's a true and biblical fact, right? And, And helping somebody, serving your neighbor, these are things that we should do. These are foundations for the gospel. It's even implications of the gospel. But is it the gospel itself explicitly? No, it's not. And so what is the gospel? Well, the gospel is, first of all, good news. That's what it means. At the foundation of it, it's good news. It's the good news of God that before the foundations of the world, he made a plan. He made a plan to seek and save the lost. It's the good news of God that the perfect life that he demanded us to live, Jesus came in the flesh and he lived for us because we couldn't do it. The gospel is the good news of God that the death 
that he demanded from us because of our sin and rebellion against him, Jesus died for us in our place. And that according to the scriptures, Jesus rose from the dead on the third day to conquer sin and death once for all so that everyone who by God's grace places their faith in him will get to be with God forever. That's the gospel. And this gospel not only speaks to eternal destinies, it also speaks to our everyday realities. The gospel addresses everything. And today in particular, we're going to be looking at how the gospel addresses depression. It may sound like a strange topic to start the series off with, but by God's providence, this is just the way that it worked out. But hopefully, if you're in here and struggling with depression and you feel like God's far off or he's absent, hopefully you feel God's love for you and wanting to address you first, and wanting to address you first. We're going to be in Psalms chapter 42 today. Let's read together. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me continually, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God, with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me, therefore I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Mazar, deep cost to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of my enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me, while they say to me continually, where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Have you ever gone through something, or maybe you're going through it right now, something that can be only described as your soul being cast down, or your soul being in turmoil? This is a psalm that's familiar to a lot of us, right? At least the first verse anyways. As the deer pants for water, so my soul longs for you, right? If you've grown up in church, we all know this song. Um, but if you look at the rest of the psalm, I think maybe we got the melody wrong. As the deer panted for the water, so my soul. Some of you are like, <laughs> some of you are like, how dare you make fun of that song? Well, I love the song too, but... I don't think the melody quite captures the emotion of the psalm. After all, the psalm is about a man whose soul is downcast and his soul is in turmoil, right? God put Psalm 42 in the Bible for times only when we could describe the condition of our souls 
with the words cast down and in turmoil. For some of you, this is just all too familiar. So what does a soul in turmoil look like? What does a downcast soul look like? The metaphor of verse 1 is not simply of a deer that likes drinking water because it's fun, right? The metaphor of verse 1 is not simply of a deer that's even thirsty and looking for water. The metaphor of verse 1 is of a deer that's panting and it's dying of thirst and it goes to the familiar water brooks only to find that the water brook has run dry. That's the metaphor of verse 1. And so therefore, verse 2 says, My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Or another way it can be translated, When shall I see the face of God? In other words, the psalmist is saying, God, I'm dying here. I long for you. I'm seeking you, but I can't find you. When will I be able to see you again? The psalmist has lost something. What has he lost? He's lost God's face. He's lost God's face. He's lost the intimacy of meeting with him. He's lost the taste, the touch, the sight of God in his soul. The things that used to stir him, the things that used to make his soul glad, the things that used to make him feel safe and secure, no longer resonates. It no longer resonates. He's lost the sense of God. He hasn't lost the belief in God, as the Psalms show us. He hasn't lost the belief in God. He's lost the feel of God. And why is that such a big deal? He still believes Why is it such a big deal that he doesn't feel? Because the whole of Christian faith is built upon God's presence. God looking at you, looking at me, and saying, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. That's what Jesus is all about. Him coming down as Emmanuel, God with us. And so for the believer, for the Christian, there's nothing more devastating than seeking God's presence but feeling his absence. There's nothing more devastating for the believer than to seek his presence but to feel his utter absence. And so his soul is cast down. It's in turmoil. Have you ever been there? Are you there now? If you're a Christian and you're trying to follow Jesus in this world, really the Bible assumes to one degree or another you will experience depression. The Bible assumes that. Psalm 42 is what's considered a lament psalm. A lament psalm is a psalm that expresses grief and despair. God gave us 150 psalms. Out of 150 psalms, do you know how many lament psalms he gave us? Out of 150 psalms, 67 of them are considered lament psalms. What is that showing us? That's showing us that God knows that in this life, You and I will go through much grief, much despair, much sadness, and he wants to prepare us. He doesn't want to leave us without his word. He wants to equip us for those times. And so first, I'd like for us to look at the possible causes for depression. Let's look at the possible causes for depression. And then after that, let's look at the biblical cures for depression. 
So the question is, why do we go through these times? What are the causes for depression? The psalmist asks, why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Why? Right? Well, commonly in other places where a person is going through something like this, it's because of sin. In Psalm 32, David is speaking concerning his sin, and he says in verse 3, for when I kept silent about his sin, he says, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long, for day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. David is saying that his bones were wasting away and that he's groaning all day long, that his strength is dried up, that his soul is in turmoil, right? Why? Because of sin in his life. Not just sin in general, we're all sinners, but because of a particular sin in his life that he was holding on to, not confessing, not repenting from. And so it may very well be that some of us are going through a turmoil of the soul because there's some sin in our life that we're holding on to, keeping in the dark, refusing to confess. And what would be the cure for that? What does David do next? Verse 5, he says, and so I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. And so if you're going through a dark night of the soul, as some Puritans would call it, it may be because of a particular sin in your life. Really, then, the solution is simple, right? It may be tremendously difficult, but nevertheless simple. The solution is for you to confess to God and to confess to the people that God has put in your life. Confess and repent and turn away. And because of the gospel, because of the good news that Jesus died for your sins, you will experience God's grace in forgiving you and therefore your soul would be lifted up. And so sometimes, and a lot of the times, we experience our souls being downcast and in turmoil because of some sin that we're grasping onto and not letting go, right? But that's not always the case. But that's not always the case, is it? Some of you are like legitimately, God, I'm, I'm going through this, and, and I feel like I've confessed that everything. I, I know I'm a sinner, but there's not anything particular I'm holding on to. There's no particular sin that's listed in Psalms 42. And it's showing us that, yes, while depression can happen because of some sin in our lives, it can also happen without it. In fact, depression can sometimes happen not because of our sin, but because of our obedience. Not because of our sin, but because of our obedience. It's quite possible for someone to be thirsty for God, to serve God and to seek his will and yet at times go through a deep turmoil of the soul. It happened to men like Charles Spurgeon, Martin Luther, Jonathan Edwards. These were all men who struggled deeply in depression in the midst of seeking God, in the midst of their obedience. Martin Luther, in the midst of leading the church through one of the greatest movements in church history, what we now know as the Reformation experienced deep depression. Chris Armstrong, a professor of church history at Bethel Seminary, he 
He writes an article, and in it he writes, Historian David Steinmetz describes the terror which Luther experienced at these times as a fear that God had turned his back on him once and for all, abandoning him to suffer the pains of hell. Feeling alone in the universe, Luther doubted his own faith, his own mission, and the goodness of God. Doubts which, because they verged on blasphemy, drove him deeper and deeper into despair. His prayers met a wall of indifferent silence. He experienced heart palpitations, crying spells, and profuse sweating. He was convinced that he would die soon and go straight to hell. For more than a week, I was close to the gates of death and hell. I trembled in all my members. Christ was wholly lost. I was shaken by desperation and blasphemy of God. And so in the midst of you seeking God, wanting to do his will, you may be experiencing turmoil. And instead of God rewarding you for your obedience, you may feel like he's punishing you. Something has happened in verses 9 and 10. Something has happened that would cause the psalmist to say, why have you forgotten me? Right? Something's happened. Something's happened that would cause the psalmist to say, God, why have you forgotten me? I'm trying to obey you. I'm seeking you. Why did you let this happen? Are you punishing me? Something has happened that would cause his enemies to ask, hey, where is your God? I thought he's real. I thought he's good. Why would he let this happen to you? Hey, where is your God? Something has happened. And so maybe you're genuinely trying to walk with Jesus, right? Live in obedience, but your wife wants to leave you. Maybe you're, you really want to raise up godly kids that, that love him and that obey him, but you've had yet another miscarriage. Maybe you're trying to honor God with your studies and your future career, but you feel absolutely no direction from him. And so you're floating from one major to another without any sense of purpose. Maybe you desire to have a godly marriage that honors God, that points to Christ in the church, but singleness seems to have no end. Seems to have no end. And so maybe you're in this boat. You're trying to live in faith and obedience, but your soul is in turmoil. Or even worse, you may feel like it's being tormented. If you're one of these, first of all, know that you're not alone. Know that you're not alone. Some of the greatest saints that the world has ever known went through the deepest, darkest struggles of depression. And what is most hopeful is, as we'll see later, Jesus himself. Jesus himself experienced the darkest night of the soul, not because of sin, but because of obedience. But because of obedience. See, sometimes God uses depression in our lives so that we would know Jesus better, right? Sometimes God uses depression in your life so that you would know Jesus better, know him in his suffering. The Bible calls it sharing in the sufferings of Jesus, fellowshipping with him in the suffering of Jesus. And so maybe you're experiencing depression because of sin, 
but also maybe because of obedience. Another cause I wanted to look at is the physical, the physical causes. Psalm 42 verse 3 says, my tears have been my food day and night. My tears have been my food day and night. Martin Lloyd-Jones is a doctor turned preacher, and he wrote a book called Spiritual Depression. And in it, he identifies Psalm 42, verse 3, as symptoms of clinical depression. My tears have been my food. What's happening? This person's not eating. They have no appetite for food. My tears have been my food day and night. What's happening? This person's not sleeping. They're not eating or sleeping. There's something physical going on here. You see, as Christians... We have a tendency to reduce everything to the spiritual. Oh, you're going through depression? Well, you just need to pray more. You just need to read the Bible more. While the world has a tendency to reduce everything to the physical. Oh, you're going through depression? Well, here's some pills that you can take, right? But when man fell in the garden, all of man, the total man fell in the garden. Not just our spirits, but our physiology fell in the garden. Chemicals that ought to be in balance are in balance no longer, and we may need God's common grace of medication to make us better. Okay? So make no mistake, depression is always a spiritual issue. Depression is always a spiritual issue, but it may not always be just a spiritual issue. Depression is always a spiritual issue, but it may not always be just a spiritual issue. And so we need all of God's grace, his common grace of medication and his special grace of the gospel in lifting our souls from turmoil out of depression. And so if you're here today and you're taking prescribed antidepressants, you don't have to feel like that you're just not trusting God enough. You don't have to feel like you just don't have enough faith. We need all of God's grace. But if you are on medication, I would like to say, don't treat that pill as your savior. All right? I know you may never say it, but functionally you may live like that pill is your savior. Jesus is our one and only Savior. If at all possible, I would advise you to go and seek the wisdom of a Christ-centered, Bible-saturated medical doctor to make sure that medication is the best course of action for you. And so those are the possible causes for depression. It could be because of sin. It could be because of obedience. It could be for physical reasons. It's not exhaustive, obviously, but these are some of the major causes. And so what does the Bible have to say about the cures for such a condition? What did the psalmist do in chapter 42? What the psalmist did was that he remembered God. He remembered God. During the times when we don't feel God, when we don't sense his presence, we have to remember that it was not always this way. We have to remember that it was not always this way. We have to remember the times when we did feel his presence, times when our souls were not in turmoil, but it actually felt joy. We have to actively remember because when we don't feel God's nearness, it will feel like he was never near, right? 
And so we have to actively remember. And so in verse 4, the psalmist says, These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with the glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. Church, when God gives you the grace to be able to sing to him and you feel something, When God gives you the grace in worshiping him and you sense his presence that he is near. When God gives you the grace to hear from his word and you feel him working in your life, cherish that feeling because it may not always be there. It may not always be there. That feeling you can't take for granted. You have to cherish it and you have to remember it Because those thoughts, those memories are weapons for fighting depression. Listen, if if God is not here, if God is not in this room like Aaron was talking about, if he's not doing a supernatural work in here while we're worshiping him, while we're hearing from his word, remembering the feelings that we felt when we're singing to him, remembering how we felt when we read from his word is simply sentimentality and nostalgia. That's all it is. But because he is actually here, because he's here doing a supernatural work, because he actually inhabits the praises of his people, remembering him is not simply sentimentality. It's not simply nostalgia. It's a supernatural weapon that destroys depression. So remember him. Remember him. And so the psalmist fights depression by remembering Remembering God is one of the cures for depression. But what else, what else do we see him doing? We see him talking to himself. In a sense, preaching to himself. He preaches to himself and says in verse 5, Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Well, who is he talking to here? Who is he talking to Who is he telling to hope in God? Who is he telling that he will again praise God? He's telling himself. He's telling himself. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones comments on this verse and says, Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? What does he mean by that? He means that throughout our day, we are listening to the ceaseless thoughts of our internal selves. We're listening to the ceaseless thoughts of our internal selves, thoughts that say, where is your God? Thoughts that say, God has forgotten you. Thoughts that say, God doesn't love you. How could he possibly love you? Our thoughts are constantly speaking these things and we're constantly listening. And so if we're going to break the downward spiral that leads us into depression, we have to stop. We have to stop ourselves and we have to say, self, you sure have been talking. You sure have been talking a lot. Now you shut up. I'm going to speak to you. I'm going to speak to you. You have to address your soul in turmoil. 
You have to speak to it. You have to preach the gospel to it. And we have to repeatedly do this. The psalmist doesn't just preach to himself in verse 5. He preaches to himself again in verse 11. Because we're constantly listening to ourselves, we have to constantly preach to ourselves over and over again. My uh, five-year-old son, Malachi, he's been having trouble sleeping lately because he's been having nightmares. And uh, he's been having nightmares of skunks that are spraying him. (laughs) And so it's a silly thing, I know, but it's real to him. And he's waking up and he's crying and he has trouble uh, falling back asleep. And so Angela taught him a Bible verse, Psalm 56, 3 through 4. And it says, when I'm afraid, I put my trust in you. In God whose word I praise. In God I trust. I shall not be afraid. What can skunks do to me? (laughs) What can flesh do to me? Um, and so we, we taught him this verse, and so the next time he woke up, started crying, we went to his room, and I said, Malachi, I want you to say this verse out loud. And so he does, and he starts crying and says, Appa, it's not working, I'm still scared. And I said, Malachi, you're saying it, but you're not believing it. And I want you to say it over and over and over again until you believe it. And so we left his room, closing his doors, As we heard him say over and over and over again, when I'm afraid, I put my trust in you. And the next morning, he came downstairs. I said, Malachi, why are you so scared of skunks? And he said, I'm not scared of skunks. And that was that. And (laughs) now he's afraid of spiders. (laughs) So when our souls are cast down and in turmoil, we have to preach to ourselves over and over again until we believe it. Our downcast soul will not be transformed by one exhortation, right? We have to keep, keep preaching to ourselves. But you know, we would be falling short to simply focus on our souls in turmoil. We would be falling short to simply focus on the psalmist's soul in turmoil. We have to dig deeper. We have to look further to the one whose soul was truly in turmoil. Whose soul was that? Jesus, as we alluded to before, was a man that was living in complete and absolute obedience. But in the Garden of Gethsemane, we hear him say, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. His was a soul that was truly in turmoil. My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Jesus' soul was matchlessly in turmoil, truly cast down, even unto death, as he contemplated the impending wrath of God that would be poured out upon him on the cross. And so you want to talk about a depression caused by the physical? His hands and his feet would be nailed to wood, rusty iron, tearing through the tenderest of nerves. Just to catch a breath, he would have to push up on his feet using the nail as leverage as his back lashed 40 times would scrape against that rugged cross. You want to talk about a depression caused by sin? Having never known sin, he would become sin. Having never known wrath, he would have to drink the whole cup. You want to talk about a psychological, emotional depression? 
having never known separation from the Father, he would be forsaken by him. His heart would melt like wax, broken by reproach. He would be abandoned, and he would cry out in unusual darkness, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, at times, we feel like we've been forsaken by God. But Jesus was truly forsaken by God. You see, we may feel like we're cast down, but Jesus was struck down. Jesus was truly forsaken so that you and I will never be forsaken. And so when we tell ourselves, when we preach to ourselves, we say, self, I know you feel like you're forsaken by God right now, but Jesus was truly forsaken. He was truly forsaken for you so that I will never be forsaken. That's how you preach the gospel to yourselves. You have to preach to yourself. You have to say along with the psalmist, self, why are you cast down? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. Hope in God, I will again praise him. And if the psalmist before the cross is able to say hope in God, how much more are we after the cross able to say hope in God? If the, if the psalmist before the cross is able to say I will again praise him, how much more are we after the cross able to say I will again praise him? And look at the realism of the hope that the psalmist has. What does he say? He says, hope in God, I will again praise him. Right? Hope in God, I will again praise him. He doesn't say, I'm praising him now. That's to live in denial. He doesn't say, I will never praise him. That's to surrender utterly into depression. He says, hope in God, I will again praise him. He's saying, there's coming a day. There's coming a day when I will praise him. He's saying what I'm going through now is real. And I'm not praising him the way that I want. I'm not praising him the way that he deserves. But there's coming a day. Church, we have a faithful God. And we have a Savior who went through the deepest, darkest night of the soul that you and I can't ever imagine so that we, in the midst of our darkness, can hope in God. And so no matter what degree of depression you guys may be going through right now, my hope and prayer is that God lifts you out soon, that he would do it soon. But even if he doesn't, and you battle depression for the rest of your life, if you breathe your last in the middle of depression, like many saints who've gone before us, there's so many stories of saints who've gone before us who struggle deeply with depression, and they struggle with depression till their dying day. And so even if he doesn't lift you out, we can still say, hope in God. Why? We could still say hope in God because God uses even depression to renew you, to sanctify you. God uses depression as your servant to point you to Jesus. So we could still say hope in God. And we could still say, I will again praise him. Because you will. Because you will. 
There's coming a day when God will wipe every tear from your eye. There's coming a day when you will find yourself in your new glorified body, with your new glorified mind, with your new glorified emotion, never to taste the bitterness of depression ever again. So let's hope in God. No matter what you're going through, hope in God and say to yourself, I will again praise his name. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for 67 lament psalms. You know our frame. You know this world. You know the conditions of our souls, that it will experience much sadness, grief, and despair. And we thank you that you did not leave us without your word. And we thank you that you did not leave us without your son who went to the deepest, darkest place of his soul, who cried out in agony of your forsaking him so that we will be confident that we will never be forsaken by you. Thank you for the grace and feeling. Thank you for the grace and feeling your presence and thank you for your grace and feeling your absence so that we would seek you, so that we would long for you. Father, we long for the day of your son's return when we will sing and we will shout, we will be joy-filled and never to taste a hint of depression ever again. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.